Good morning, everyone. So my name is David Wiles. I'm going to be one of your um, co-chairs throughout the day, but we're going to start off this morning with kind of a HCV introductory course to kind of set the groundwork and hopefully bring everybody up to kind of the same level as we go into the more detailed cases in the, in the later morning and afternoon. Um, and this is something that the IAS USA introduced based on actually feedback um, from prior course attendees that they would like maybe a, an introductory course to start the day off for those who, who feel like they might want to see some more basic HCV stuff to kind of bring them up to speed. So that's what we're going to do right now. So this is going to be the overview of hepatitis C management. So these are our objectives for the morning. Um, we're going to talk about uh, hepatitis C epidemiology. We'll briefly review the viral replication life cycle and particularly highlighting some of the replication targets that are being exploited now in the new generation of medicines coming out. Uh, a little bit about viral kinetics and some of the nomenclature that's very confusing around different responses um, and the timing of those responses. We'll kind of run through at least summary of what we had to deal with before with pegylated interferon and ribavirin, how well that worked for hepatitis C infection, um, and then how we got to where we are now with the addition of protease inhibitors to pegylated interferon and ribavirin. So we'll briefly review the, some of the early phase studies and talk a little bit about pharmacogenomics, which do have an impact on patient responses. Um, and then talk a little bit more about SVR and, and the impact SVR has on clinical outcomes for your patients. So HCV epidemiology worldwide, about 170 to 200 million persons are infected. Um, some of the highest prevalence areas are in northern Africa, particularly around Egypt, where the prevalence of hepatitis C antibody positivity is over 15%. The United States, um, we're a relatively low prevalence area. Overall, about 1.6% of the population is estimated to be infected. Uh, that translates into about 3 to 4 million chronically infected persons, although um, this is largely based on NHANES data, and there are populations that are at high risk that are admitted, omitted from that data. So the number may be upwards of 5 to some estimates suggest even 7 million chronically infected persons in the United States. So again, probably five times more than we have in terms of chronic HIV infection in the United States. The virus itself is a very diverse virus across the globe, and there are six main genotypes. There are actually up to 11 sub kind of genotypes, but six main ones that we talk about during therapy. Genotype 1 is the most common form in the United States. If you can see here and appreciate the two different white hatchings here are genotype 1. So in the United States, it's probably approaching 75% of our infections are estimated to be genotype 1. And this does have impact for HCV therapeutic responses. Genotype 1 is the most difficult to treat, particularly with pegylated interferon and ribavirin. It has the lowest response rate. Um, and it requires the longest duration of treatment with pegylated interferon and ribavirin in the, in the previous iterations. Um, and you can see in the rest of the globe, Western Europe also has a predominance of genotype 1, but it's more genotype 1B than 1A, and we'll come back to those more subtle differences. And then other places throughout the world, you see a, a number of different genotypes uh, spread out, including some uh, unique places like genotype 6 in Southeast Asia. So acute HCV infection, this is the incidence or estimated incidence of acute HCV infection from the CDC. And you can see back in the uh, 80s and into the early 90-91, we had a relatively high incidence of acute HCV infection. And these were recognized cases, so about 30 to 40,000. Because HCV is generally asymptomatic and most acute cases are not recognized, the actual number of incident cases back in the 80s was estimated to be somewhere around 300,000 incident cases before we had effective screening for hepatitis C in our blood supply and before we actually even knew what the virus was. Hepatitis C was only identified in 1989. But then you see shortly after the virus identification, we started to implement effective screening techniques in the blood supply. Um, this also was coincident, obviously, with the recognition of the HIV epidemic. And so blood screening efforts at limiting HIV transmission kind of inadvertently had the effect of also decreasing hepatitis C transmission due to the shared routes of transmission and shared risk factors. Um, but again, once we had effective diagnostic tests to screen the blood supply, we see a dramatic decrease in the incidence of acute HCV infection. Now, in terms of symptomatic acute cases reported to the CDC, it's hovering around somewhere around 2,500 to 3,000. But again, that's a small fraction of the actual estimated number of acute infections, which is probably somewhere around 15 to 20,000 a year, um, again, because it's largely asymptomatic in its acute form. The other problem is, because it's asymptomatic, we estimate at least half of people, and some estimates would be much higher than that, don't know they're infected with hepatitis C. Um, and it accounts for 8 to 10,000 deaths. Some more recent statistics may even say that's as high as 15,000 deaths. And again, um, I don't think we probably do a very good job of capturing 
HCV as one of the causes of death for a lot of patients if they come in with end-stage liver disease and die of an infection. It may or may not get coded that they had hepatitis C as their reason for their end-stage liver disease. So I think these are all underestimates of um, death due to hepatitis C, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. So in the United States, if you look at the demographics of hepatitis C, who, which populations are most likely to have hepatitis C? Again, this is based on the NHANES data. Um, so again, overall, about 1.6% of the U.S. population is hepatitis C antibody positive. Um, and then if you look at the birth cohorts, so those born from 1945 to 65, the, the prevalence goes up to just over 4%. And this data is the basis for the recent CDC recommendation that everybody born between 45 and 65 should be screened for hepatitis C at least once, regardless of risk. So that's a new mandate that, again, everybody born from 1945 to 65 should have had at least one HCV test done in, some course, in, in the course of their medical care. And then if we break it down further, in um, African, African Americans, um, in particular if you look at African American men born in this time frame, the prevalence of hepatitis C antibody positivity is approaching 14%. What happens when somebody's infected with hepatitis C? How does the disease progress? So after acute hepatitis C, again, which in the majority of patients is asymptomatic, um, somewhere maybe around a quarter of patients may have more prominent symptoms, fatigue, maybe even some nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, acolic or light-colored stools. It's the, the vast, very few that actually become jaundiced and have yellowing of the eyes. Um, so after acute hepatitis C, a portion will clear on their own. Somewhere around 25% clear on their own. Um, but the remainder will go on to develop chronic hepatitis, which means chronic viral replication, and generally some level of chronic hepatic inflammation. Of those people, a minority, only about 20%, get a progressive liver disease to an extent such that they eventually develop cirrhosis, which is a histologic characterization of their liver, um, but we associate with the clinical scenario of end-stage liver disease or decompensated liver disease eventually. So once somebody reaches the, the histologic stage of cirrhosis, they can have decompensation, which are the, the clinical sequelae such as ascites, encephalopathy, variceal bleeding, and that generally happens in a, a small percentage of those 20% that have cirrhosis. The overall time period to go from acquisition of infection to cirrhosis is variable, but it's on the order of decades, probably around 30 to 40 years for most persons. Now, there are certainly things you can do or they can do to speed that up. One would be drink alcohol, um, be older when you acquire your hepatitis C, HIV infection is something we'll be talking much more about today. That also seems to speed up the hepatitis C progression rate, um, although as we'll talk, treating HIV also seems to slow it back down. And then post-transplant, you can get very aggressive recurrences of hepatitis C. Why do we care? Well, because of all that transmission that I showed you back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, again, it's that 30 to 40 year time lag until you actually see clinical sequelae from hepatitis C infection and that's what was modeled here by Gary Davis in this gastroenterology paper where this is the line of patients presenting with decompensated cirrhosis. So coming into the hospital, again, with ascites, encephalopathy, variceal bleeding. And you can see we're, we're on the steep part of this curve as it's going up. And it's still, we're still expecting this to peak in the next five to 10 years, you know, somewhere around 2020 or so. The peak occurrence, again, of the sequelae of all the transmission occurring in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And then hepatocellular carcinoma has also been on the rise. Uh, again, really mirroring the increase in decompensated liver disease. So to talk a little bit more about the viral life cycle, um, hepatitis C is a positive sense RNA virus. It actually travels in the bloodstream associated with lipid particles in the blood, mostly VLDL, um, and that's probably part of the way it hones into the liver. Most of the lipids in your blood eventually get recognized by LDL receptors and other lipid receptors on the hepatocytes, which in starts the initial interaction. And then there are four specific receptors required for hepatitis C virus entry, um, CD81, SRB1, or scavenger receptor B1, and then uh, the tight junction proteins, occludin and claudin. After the virus enters, it's a positive strand RNA, so it acts like an mRNA in the cell, which means it can directly make protein off that viral RNA, and that's what it does. It hijacks the ribosome and makes its proteins, which organize on lipid membranes in the cell cytoplasm. And then the polymerase, the viral polymerase, the NS5B protein, takes this positive strand RNA and makes a negative strand RNA. It copies it kind of forward to back. And then that negative strand, again, is a template for making more positive strand, which is what is packaged in the virus and secreted from the cells. Um, the reason we, we spend some time on this is that we have, obviously, have medications now that target the viral polymerase. There's also a viral protease, which chops up 
the polyprotein as it's made, so they go into their functional enzymes so they can work, and I think that's highlighted actually on the next slide. So this is the organization of the virus. Again, it acts like an mRNA, and as it's translated, it makes one long protein. It actually, cellular proteases cleave some of these junctions, and the viral NS3 protease actually cleaves the rest of these, making, again, their individual subunit proteins, which are active. The, the specifics one, specific ones circled here, the protease, the NS5A protein, and the NS5B RNA polymerase are the ones that really we have a lot of drug discovery going around and are the actively in clinical trials, and obviously NS3 protease inhibitors are the ones we have already clinically approved as adjuncts for interferon and ribavirin therapy. So what about viral kinetics on therapy? Um, this is a slide to get you at least start to be oriented with some of the terminology we use around viral kinetics. Um, quite simply, viral kinetics is just what happens to the viral level in the blood when we institute some, tor some type of HCV therapy. So you start out at a level here. They have Most patients are going to have a viral load somewhere around a million, give or take. Um, and then after they start therapy, um, the first time point we encounter is what we call a rapid virologic response. A patient who has a rapid virologic response during therapy means they went from wherever they were to at four weeks having an undetectable viral load. So within four weeks, an undetectable viral load, that would be somebody who has achieved a rapid virologic response. Um, if they go to negative at week four and maintain that negativity, generally to week 12 or week 24, depending on the regimen we're talking about, um, that's then what we call an extended rapid virologic response. So they were negative by week four and maintained that negativity. Um, traditionally, with just interferon and ribavirin therapy, early virologic response meant patients went negative by week 12. And here again is the extended rapid virologic response. Patients who are suppressed and remain suppressed for the duration of their therapy, however long it is, and then remain suppressed after therapy is removed for a given time period. Traditionally, SVR or sustained virologic response, which I think is synonymous with cure, traditionally with interferon and ribavirin-based therapy, that meant the patient remained undetectable for six months after they had stopped their therapy, 24 weeks. Today, as you'll hear, more and more clinical trials are shortening that definition for SVR to 12 weeks after patients finish therapy. So now, if patients remain undetectable 12 weeks after they finish therapy, we're calling that an SVR. It's usually denoted SVR 12 to differentiate it from an SVR 24. So you may hear that terminology um, used later today. Patients who don't respond are up here, and there are various types of non-response. The, the worst non-response, if you will, is a null responder. This is somebody who you give them HCV therapy, and their viral load essentially does nothing. Traditionally, the, the limit for this is two logs, so they don't have a hundredfold decrease in their HCV RNA level. Um, so they're a null responder. A partial responder has a decrease below two logs with initial therapy, but never gets to undetectable. And then what you can also have are patients who reach undetectability at some point during their therapy, and then either break through on therapy, and that's a virologic breakthrough, or they'll break through after their antiviral therapy has been stopped, and that's a relapse. And again, we'll come back to all these groups as we talk about the various studies later on in the day. They do all have different kind of prognostic significance for subsequent treatment. So what was the prior standard of care? It was pegylated interferon and ribavirin therapy. And again, this all changed in May of 2011 when the HCV protease inhibitors were first approved. So how did, how did we do before we had protease inhibitors? This is um, data from one of the, the two larger studies using pegylated interferon, um, 1A and 1B, sorry, 2A and 2B. Um, in genotype 1, you can see, and I alluded to this before, the sustained virologic response rate is somewhere around 40 to 45%. Um, for patients treated with pegylated interferon and ribavirin, generally for 48 weeks, but sometimes extended out to 72 weeks. And then in genotypes 2 and 3, they respond much better to therapy with response rates somewhere around 75 to 80 percent for pegylated interferon and ribavirin therapy. And that's generally with half the duration with a 24-week treatment uh, regimen for genotypes 2 and 3. Next slide. Oh, there we go. And then um, if we look to kind of parse this out a little more, um, to look at different subgroups, particularly different ethnic groups, um, treated again with pegylated interferon 2B at 1.5 micrograms per kilogram or 1, so kind of a low dose of 1 microgram per kilogram, or, or pegylated interferon alpha 2A, um, which is given at a standard dose of 180 micrograms. You can see um, for white patients, 
SVR is very similar regardless of dose of PEG-2B or PEG-A, about 44%. Again, this is all genotype 1 patients here. Um, African Americans respond poorly to pegylated interferon and ribavirin-based therapy, and we'll talk about the reason for that in a, in a few slides. Um, but you can see here with response rates that are almost half of what they are for uh, whites or Caucasians. Um, and ad additionally, if they get the lower dose of PEG-2B, they don't seem to do as well as the higher dose, so dose seems to matter. Hispanics are closer to Caucasians, but maybe not quite as well, especially if you use a lower dose. Um, and then you can see Asians um, tend to do very well with treatment with pegylated interferon and ribavirin. And again, this comes back to the host genomics that we'll talk about, particularly IL-28B. Um, and the response rates are, are much better with pegylated interferon-based therapies. What about co-infected patients? So again, with pegylated interferon and ribavirin therapy, as you can see here in the slide, co-infected patients did not do as well as HCV mono-infected patients. Particularly, I'll draw your attention to the red bars, which are the genotype 1-4 patients. And you can see in these four different studies done in co-infected patients, the response for genotype 1 HCV co-infected patients um, with pegylated interferon and ribavirin was um, actually pretty dismal for co-infected patients. So the Ribovic study, 17%. Apricot study, 29%. The ACTG uh, study, 14%. And then in the Spanish uh, PRESCO trial, a little higher at 38%. In particular, with um, these earlier studies, uh, they used a very, generally used a low dose of ribavirin. Some used 800 or 600 milligrams of ribavirin, which um, prior to the addition of protease inhibitors, most patients treating um, co-infected patients probably would have done the standard weight-based ribavirin, 1,000 or 1,200. And that may explain some of the low responses, particularly the ACTG study where they started with as low as 600 milligrams and did a gradual dose escalation in ribavirin if it was tolerated. The other thing to point out that is in, in general, genotype 2 and 3 patients resp uh, subtype respond very well to pegylated interferon therapy, even in co-infected patients, um, again with the ACTG study having a, a rate that looks identical really to mono-infected patients for genotype 2-3. So I showed you the efficacy data. The other kind of side of the coin of pegylated interferon and ribavirin therapy um, is these different sub-factors that can kind of help you get a better idea of how likely your patient is to respond. So patients with lower viral load makes intuitive sense are more likely to respond to pegylated interferon therapy. Those with earlier stages of fibrosis, younger patients, women do better than men, um, non-African-American race, low body weight, um, less insulin resistance, and less steatosis. Um, so all these factors, um, if, if you have them as they're listed here, are positive predictors or indicate a better likelihood of responding to pegylated interferon and ribavirin therapy. As we'll talk later in the day, protease inhibitors largely abrogate these effects, but don't, don't completely wipe them out. So these are still associated with better responses, but again, protease inhibitors kind of level the playing field. So I, I ran you through the viral kinetics, and, and what, is, what do viral kinetics on treatment tell us about the ultimate likelihood of getting a sustained response? And what you can see here is the time to patient being undetectable on pegylated interferon therapy and their percentage chance of being cured or their, their rate of being cured. So you see, if you have a patient you treat with pegylated interferon and ribavirin therapy and they're undetectable by week two, they're very likely to go on and be cured. Now, this is, so 37 of the 44 that did that are likely to be cured, but the problem is those 44 end up being, you know, somewhere around 5 to maybe 10% of all patients you're going to treat with pegylated interferon and ribavirin therapy are actually going to be undetectable by week two. Um, so if they do it, it's great, but the problem is not many patients attain that mark with pegylated interferon and ribavirin therapy alone. And similarly, the later they become undetectable, the lower the response rates are with pegylated interferon and ribavirin therapy. And as pointed out here, this is the reason for response-guided therapy that we now use pretty regularly, even with protease inhibitors in the mix. So interferon is not nice to take, nor is ribavirin, so this is the list of adverse events from the IDEAL study. You can see fatigue extremely common, 63%. Anemia in just over a third. Um, and rash down here in about a quarter. Um, depression, neutropenia, you can read the list. But these are significant side effects um, that we deal with in patients that we're treating every day. And we still have to deal with because we still need to use pegylated interferon and ribavirin right now. Uh, acute hepatitis C. Um, the, the message here is that if you treat during acute hepatitis C, response rates are much better than if it becomes chronic. Again, it's somewhat difficult because clinically, most patients are asymptomatic, so it's hard to find them in the acute phases frequently. Uh, and, um, but if you do, you can see here, um, 
the earlier you initiate treatment, there's kind of this association of better responses the sooner you start treatment after acquisition of hepatitis C. The, the caveat to that is that some patients will clear on their own. Previously, I told you about 25% overall clear hepatitis C after they have it. Um, the interesting part, though, is patients who clinically are recognized as having acute hepatitis C tend to be ones that are more symptomatic, right? They're going to the doctor because they feel poorly after they got hepatitis C, or maybe they're one of the few that gets jaundice. Um, for whatever reason, those patients are also the ones that are most likely to clear on their own. Um, their body's already mounting an effective immune response. That's probably why they're jaundiced and feel so bad. Um, so they're more likely to clear on their own as well. So there is this kind of um, decision process about do I start treatment or do I wait to see if the patient's going to clear on their own and not subject them to interferon and ribavirin. This 12-week time point comes in because um, of some other studies done that showed by 12 weeks, most patients who are going to clear have cleared or have had a steep drop in their viral RNA. And essentially, by the time you get to 17 to 18 weeks, almost nobody clears after 17 to 18 weeks after acute infection. So depending on your practice, some people will start as early as 12 weeks treatment for acute HCV if patients haven't cleared. Other places, and, and we tend to wait maybe a few more weeks for mono-infected patients to see if they'll clear before we start treatment. But regardless, if you can treat somebody in acute HCV, they do respond much better to therapy. So the research timeline, kind of where have we been and where are we going with hepatitis C therapy? Uh, again, as I mentioned, in 89 was actually the identification of the hepatitis C virus, so we first learned what it was there. Um, the protease structure was solved here. Um, we started to have lab-based systems where we could study HCV in vitro in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and here was the start of interferon and ribavirin combination therapy in 98. Um, the first proof of concept, actually, for protease inhibitors with the Behringer BILN-2061 compound was published in Nature in 2003. Um, and unfortunately, that drug ended up falling out because of toxicity, cardiotoxicity, but it's taken us a while to get to 2011, um, where uh, HIV protease, HCV protease inhibitors were finally approved. And then um, what we have here superimposed are kind of the milestones in HIV in terms of definition of the AIDS uh, syndrome and uh, identification of the HIV virus, and then AZT monotherapy starting in 1987. And obviously, there's been rapid progression with HIV therapeutics over that time frame. So let's briefly talk about the phase two studies for um, the protease inhibitors. This is kind of a busy slide, but it does a good job of summarizing really all the phase two studies done with bocepravir and telaprevir. To orient you to the slide here, that kind of this is the center line, and then if you look to your left on the center line, that kind of outlines what the treatment regimen was in the study. So green bars are placebo. So this was 48 weeks of pegylate interferon and ribavirin, the standard of care. And then all the red bars indicate triple therapy for various durations, going from essentially 28 weeks in the case of bocepravir to a full 48-week course of triple therapy. Um, down here are the telaprevir studies, again, with the same orientation. Um, the one yellow bar here is one arm of a study that om omitted ribavirin in the PROVE-2 study, so this was just telaprevir with pegylate interferon for 12 weeks. Um, and you can follow the rest in terms of the designs. And then what's shown on the right side of the study are the SVR rates or the cure rates with the various regimens. And again, you can see standard of care. These are all genotype 1 patients. It's somewhere around 30, 40, to 45 percent for the various studies with standard of care. And then when you add in the protease inhibitors in the case of bocepravir, um, you see nice incremental increases in sustained virologic response going all the way up to, you know, 65 to 75 percent roughly with 48 weeks or 44 weeks with a lead-in of triple combination therapy. Telaprevir, the same orientation. Um, you can see here one thing I'll point out. When ribavirin was omitted from this PROVE-2 study, um, patients did very poorly. Uh, this was kind of an ex a surprising result. Um, Ribavirin has, doesn't get a lot of credit. Um, we don't still really know how it works against the virus, but it's clear that when you're just adding one protease inhibitor to interferon, it's essential to have ribavirin in the mix. Otherwise, all the patients essentially break through with resistance to the protease inhibitor if you don't have ribavirin in the mix. So that was certainly a failed uh, experiment there, but valuable information was, was gained. Um, if you look at triple therapy with telaprevir, various durations, um, telaprevir is only given for 12 weeks, essentially, and we'll talk more about that um, in the later sessions. But again, you see response rates somewhere in the range of 65 to 70 percent. Again, for both bocepter and telaprevir, about a 30 percent absolute increase in sustained response or cure rates over traditional standard of care pegylated interferon plus ribavirin. And obviously these studies and then the later phase three studies, which we'll talk more about later, were the basis for approval of these two medications.
So in phase three, we'll talk about tilaprevir and response-guided therapy, which again is this extended RVR criteria, so patients are negative by week four and maintain that negativity through week 12. They then become eligible for shortening their overall duration of therapy. With tilaprevir, it's somewhat a simpler treatment approach. Everybody gets triple therapy for the first 12 weeks, and then at that point, tilaprevir is stopped, and pegylate interferon and ribavirin are continued for various amounts of time after that initial 12-week period, but you always have to include ribavirin with both of these medications. Bocepravir is dosed a little bit differently. Again, something we'll talk about in much more detail later on in the day. But in um, clinical practice, essentially the way it's recommended to be used is always with a lead-in. So there's a four-week lead-in period with pegylate interferon and ribavirin given prior to adding in the protease inhibitor at week four of therapy. Um, Response-guided therapy is used as well, but of course there are different criteria for bocepravir than tilaprevir. Um, because you're adding in bocepravir later, the start of response-guided criteria are at week eight, or what would be the fourth week of having actually bocepravir being administered to the patient. Um, and there are various durations of triple therapy used. Um, and again, ribavirin must be included with bocepravir. So these are the stopping rules for um, both. This is showing you the tilaprevir stopping rules. So again, as I alluded to, you get triple combination therapy for the first three months or 12 weeks. Um, and then you, um, sorry, for the first, uh, yeah, for the first 12 weeks. But the first stopping rule comes at week four. So you start a patient on pegylate interferon, ribavirin, and tilaprevir. At one month of therapy, you should be checking an HCV RNA level. If their HCV RNA level at that point comes back greater than 1,000 IUs per mil, all therapy should be stopped at that point. So a four-week stopping rule for tilaprevir. Um, you can, after the four weeks, obviously, if they maintain this stopping rule, so the virus is less than 1,000 IUs per mil, you continue on triple therapy for 12 weeks. At week 12, you're going to draw another HCV RNA level and stop your tilaprevir regardless. Um, but the 12-week time point, again, you have to be um, less than 1,000 to continue, or if it's greater than 1,000, you would stop all therapy at week 12. The patient's not going to respond. Um, if they have another viral load less than 1,000 at week 12, you're going to continue on with pegylate interferon and ribavirin therapy for another 12 weeks to go to week uh, 24. And then if um, at week 24, they have been what we call an extended rapid virologic response, so it means, again, they were negative at week 4 and week 12, completely undetectable, not just less than 1,000, but undetectable, then they would have met the ERVR criteria and you would stop all therapy at week 24 and follow them up to see if they ultimately get a sustained virologic response. If patients at either week 4 or week 12 were less than 1,000, so they met the continuation criteria, but they weren't undetectable, then they don't meet that criteria to shorten therapy, and what you would do at week 24 is continue for another 24 weeks of pegylate interferon and ribavirin therapy. Okay, a little complex. This is the first time you'll see it. You'll see it many more times today, so it'll have a chance to uh, sink in further. Now if we look at bocepravir, now that you've got that down, um, four-week lead-in with bocepravir. Remember, in contrast to lapravir, everything starts right at the beginning. With bocepravir, you have a four-week lead-in of pegylate interferon and ribavirin, and then at week four, you add in the protease inhibitor bocepravir. You start bocepravir and then... Um, continue the patients on therapy, you should check a viral load at week eight, not because it's a stopping criteria point, but because it's a criteria point for doing your response-guided therapy. The first stopping point with bocepravir comes at week 12, or what would be eight weeks of bocepravir therapy, including the lead-in, right? So now at week 12 with bocepravir, you have to have a viral load, HCV RNA load, less than 100 to continue. If you're above 100, you would stop all three drugs at that point so if you make this threshold, you continue going, um, and then you would continue to check viral RNAs. The next stopping point, though, is week 24, where the patient has to be undetectable. So the virus has to be completely undetectable at week 24 with bocepravir. If you don't make that criteria, you would stop all therapy. If you make that criteria, then you may or may not um, continue therapy depending on what happened before. If you made your ERVR criteria with negativity at week 8 and essentially maintaining undetectability through week 24, um, you would stop right here at week 28. If you didn't do that, you would continue on, um, and then depending on whether the patient is, um, how the response went, um, you might stop here. You stop bocepravir at week 36 if they didn't make RGT criteria, but continue pegribavirin out to week 48 if they don't meet RGT criteria. Again, different and probably, I think, a little more complicated than the tilaprevir schema, 
So again, something you'll see repeatedly later on today about the treatment approaches. So now, just to finish up, we'll talk a little bit about pharmacogenomics and then finally what SVR means for your patients in terms of future clinical outcomes. So we have already alluded to this when I mentioned that, say, African Americans respond um, poorly to pegylated interferon and ribavirin therapy when you compare them to Caucasians. And then if you remember, again, uh, uh, patients of Asian descent did the best. And um, this was, it was unknown why this was, so what was done um, uh, at Johns Hopkins with, um, and uh, Duke in combination with the IDEAL study, so Andy Muir had run the IDEAL study, they went back and looked at patients and did genome-wide association studies. So they, they genotyped the patient's genome, the host genome, and looked for correlations between the patient's genotype and responses to pegylated interferon and ribavirin therapy. And there were a rash of studies published, one from Japan, again from the Duke and Hopkins group, um, on IL-28B polymorphism that was found. So here it is. This is the, the genome-wide association study, the so-called Manhattan plot, where you can see over here, I think, all these what are called SNPs, or single nucleotide polymorphisms. So they're changes in the host genome that were associated with this outcome of response to pegylated interferon and ribavirin therapy, and they all clustered on chromosome 19. All these different, again, polymorphisms in the human genome. In particular, this one here listed um, 9860 for short. Um, this polymorphism was highly statistically significantly associated with response to pegylated interferon and ribavirin therapy. Um, and, it was, and it happens to be located um, just downstream of the IL-28B gene, which is an interferon lambda gene. And so when they looked back at the IDEAL study again and did this genotype in these patients, the IL-28B genotype, what they found was drastic differences in cure rates or sustained virologic response with pegylated interferon and ribavirin therapy based on the genotype of the patients. You can see for European Americans, patients with the CC genotype, this is for the, the 9860 polymorphism, had much better SVR rates, 80% cure rate with pegylated interferon and ribavirin therapy, compared to European Americans who had one of the, the poor predictor allele, the T allele. We think of it as T for terrible, C for cure. Um, so if you have one of the bad alleles, the T allele, the response rates are much lower in the range of 35 to 40% for European Americans. And then in these other ethnic groups, you can see the same association holds up and is very statistically significant. African Americans who have the favorable alleles, our homozygous for the C allele, um, response rates of about 55% for genotype 1. But you can also see that this doesn't explain the entire discrepancy. There are obviously other probably genetic polymorphisms that we don't recognize yet that account for some of the other response, but it explains about 50 to 60% of the variance in response um, for patients to pegylated interferon and ribavirin therapy. And that's just uh, shown here are the, the odds ratios if you have the CC for getting an SVR over having a T allele. So somewhere around two to fourfold more likely to get SVR if you have a CC genotype as opposed to a patient with one of the T alleles. Oh, forgot that comes in. All right, we'll keep going here. Um, so this is what we know somewhat about how interferon lambda works in the signaling pathways. So interferon alpha is a dimeric receptor that signals through the JAK-STAT pathway and causes stimulation of interferon uh, response elements in interferon-stimulated genes. What's interesting is the interferon lambda receptor is different. It's a homodimer as well. Half of it, though, is identical to the interferon alpha receptor and functions through the JAK-STAT pathway, but the other half of the receptor is actually the same as the IL-10 receptor. Um, we're still learning a lot about the intracellular pathways. It really looks like they're very similar in terms of their intracellular signaling once interferon alpha or interferon lambda engage the receptor. Um, but there's accumulating data that there clearly are differences in how the downstream signaling works. We just don't have that all worked out yet. Um, but we'll keep going. Um, for acute HCV infection as well, the IL-28B genotype predicts clearance. And so this is a study done by Dave Thomas and his colleagues at Hopkins looking at an acute infection cohort, and same thing. If they're IL-28BCC, much more likely to clear acute HCV infection and not go on to chronicity. Um, and this holds up uh, against all different um, kind of groups, all the patients combined. If you look at just Europeans or just patients with African ancestry, again, favorable IL-28BCC, much more likely to clear acute HCV infection. And these are the odds ratios for clearance if you have a CC versus having one of the T alleles. What about co-infection? 
Um, the moral of the story is IL-28B is also predictive for co-infected patients. So these are all co-infected patients, and I'll just draw particular attention to HCV genotype 1. If patients were IL-28BCC and treated with pegylated interferon and ribavirin, 65% were cured despite being co-infected, whereas if you had a T allele, so you didn't have the favorable IL-28B genotype, um, response rates were 30%. Um, you can see with other genotypes, there are deltas, but they're um, obviously much smaller, particularly for genotypes 2 and 3, IL-28B status is predictive, but the difference between somebody who has a favorable CC genotype and somebody who has a T allele is much smaller than it is for genotypes 1. And then genotype 4 is similarly more difficult to treat. In general, you should really think of genotype 4 as acting like genotype 1 in terms of pegylated interferon responsiveness. This is just the global distribution of IL-28B genotypes um, with C, the favorable allele, the percentage of the population roughly possessing that allele, one of the alleles um, in green and blue is in, and T is in blue. What you notice is particularly, and again, this comes back to why uh, Asian populations seem to have responded so well in pegylated interferon and ribavirin trials is because um, the prevalence of the C allele in the population is somewhere around 90 to 100%. So if you talk about being homozygous, it's still, you know, over 80% are homozygous for the C allele and have favorable responses. And you can see the opposite, really, in the African continent, where the T allele is much more prevalent in the population. So another pharmacogenomic study was done, um, more looking at associations with side effects of pegylated interferon and ribavirin therapy, particularly with anemia, and the similar genome-wide association now with uh, an allele on a chromosome 20 coming up in the inosine triphosphatase gene. That's what ITP stands for inosine triphosphatase. Um, and with this allele, um, so this genomic variant in patients really predicts who's going to develop anemia when they're treated with pegylated interferon and ribavirin, and it particularly relates to the risk of ribavirin-induced anemia. Ribavirin accumulates in red blood cells, non-nucleated cells that can't essentially break it down. And what it ends up doing is competing with ATP in the cell if you get high levels of ribavirin triphosphate. And when it competes with ATP, it essentially ends up depleting the red blood cells of their ATP store, causes oxidative stress and damage, and you get red blood cell lysis. So ribavirin induces a hemolytic anemia. Patients with ITPA deficiency, is that it's actually a good thing to protect them from ribavirin-induced anemia. ITPA deficiency means patients don't break down inosine triphosphate, so they have high levels of ITP in their red blood cells. And what that can do is act as a phosphate donor and maintain levels of ATP in red blood cells if you have ITPase deficiency. Um, and so here is the risk of anemia or the percentage of patients reaching significant anemia. So a three gram drop in hemoglobin or an absolute hemoglobin level less than 10 in red. And so you can see based on their ITPA genotype, patients who are, have ITPA deficiency, which is the AA genotype, have very little, if any, ribavirin-induced anemia. And here there is somewhat of a dose effect then. So if you're heterozygote for deficiency, you see some anemia. And then if you don't have any deficiency at all, so they're CC, so they actually have full ITPase activity, um, you see more anemia develop with ribavirin therapy. And this is just another way to show it here by the amount of deficiency. So patients who are very deficient in ITPA activity, again, don't suffer ribavirin-induced anemia. And here's another study showing it just in co-infection, the same thing. Um, patients without deficiency, this is the rate of anemia for a three-gram drop in hemoglobin. So again, if they don't have deficiency in the enzyme, they get much more anemia. Now, the, the tricky thing to, that has been to show with ITPA deficiency is, sure, they develop more anemia. Does that actually impact SVRs? And the early studies didn't suggest that it really impacted SVR, and we actually know from some other just observational studies, patients who get more anemia and more side effects actually tend to do somewhat, seem to have more biologic activity of what they're taking and tend to do somewhat better um, in terms of SVR rates, but they do have more complications. Okay, so the last couple slides just to finish up. Um, what does SVR really mean for your patients? Um, just in JAMA in this year, again from the Hopkins group and Dave Thomas and Mark Sokowski's groups, they, have, they had a large cohort of co-infected patients, about 630, where they got biopsies on all of them at essentially baseline when they started to follow them in their clinic, and they had about six years of follow-up. Um, one of the other things that you'll see later from this study is baseline fibrosis states really predict how your patients are going to do. 
Obviously, those with less fibrosis do better over time than those with more fibrosis when you start to follow them. But what they also had an opportunity to look at in this cohort was what impact did HCV treatment have on the long-term mortality of their patients. And so these were the subset of patients from those 600 um, that were treated. Um, you can see here um, the number that uh, no HCV treatment, as they followed them over time, more and more got treated or, or died. Um, so the number they were following went less. But what is important here, so the ones who did not get any treatment are in the solid black line here. You can see the appreciable rate of mortality over 10 years. Um, the patients here in the dotted lines are ones who were treated but had a non-response. Um, they never got to undetectable, so they would have presumably stopped by week 24 in all cases, and they do just as poorly as those who were never treated. But the two lines up here in the top that are essentially superimposed are patients who were treated who were either cured, or what I think is also interesting is patients who were treated went to undetectable during their treatment but relapsed after treatment. Um, they still seem to uh, accrue quite a bit of um, benefit from their treatment by just having their HCV suppressed for what would have been, you know, probably at most 48, maybe 72 weeks if they had extended in some of those patients. And this is actually something that's been seen in mono-infected patients as well, and in, so in, and in the HALT-C study and the SLAM-C study, so in co-infected and mono-infected patients, that the subset of patients who aren't cured but go to undetectable or have a significant interferon response do seem to gain some benefit from that, that time of suppression of HCV viremia to a significant level. I, I still have to presume that the ones who relapse eventually, if you followed them longer and longer, would probably eventually start to, to decline again, but maybe that's selecting out a patient population that for some reason um, doesn't respond the same in terms of their immune response to hepatitis C and doesn't have the progressive uh, fibrosis. We just don't know that, though. Um, if, here I mentioned the HALT-C study, so this is um, in mono-infected patients. Now that previous was all co-infected patients. But, I mean, really the same story is here. You can see if you can make it out. SVRs are on the bottom in the solid black line. And just looking at different outcomes. So death from any cause or going to liver transplant. Obviously, if you treat somebody and cure them, you really decrease the rate of death or need for liver transplantation. Again, here's the same thing. A breakthrough relapser looks much more like an SVR, whereas a non-responder um, has a much higher rate of progressing and going to death or transplant. And then you can break it down by any outcome you want. All, all liver-related outcomes, the same effect. But again, you see here that there's more separation between breakthroughs and, and SVRs. Developing decompensated liver disease, hepatocellular carcinoma, um, and then specifically liver-related death or transplant, not all-cause mortality. In all these cases, treating hepatitis C effectively and curing your patient is going to have beneficial effects for all these potential downstream sequelae of hepatitis C infection. I think that is the last slide of our introduction. Thank you. Oh, we're right on time. Oh, Ben's bringing up maybe a question or two here. One question. Better response rates to acute hep C is noted if started by week 12. Is the timing pegged to when symptoms begin or when the patient became infected, also what regimen to treat for acute hepatitis C? Okay, so it's a good question. Um, since we, we'll often, if patients come in, obviously we don't usually catch them right when they're infected, so when they develop symptoms, we usually think there's an incubation period after you actually acquire the virus, probably within two weeks, one to two weeks the virus becomes detectable, but symptoms probably don't develop for another month or so. We generally go by when they first come to clinical care, um, if they have a clear risk where they say they injected drugs with somebody they knew had hepatitis C and it was a month ago, we may start the clock then. But in general, we start really kind of when they come to therapy, um, unless it's clear that it's been a, a long time already. So I guess I'm waffling. We, we, we do the best we can. Um, the acute treatments. Um, so for acute hepatitis C, pegylate interferon for sure. Um, in mono-infected patients, there's good data with monotherapy with pegylate interferon that ribavirin may not be necessary. For co-infected patients, we always use ribavirin, and we use weight-based ribavirin with pegylate interferon, but we do shorten therapy if they have a rapid response. So if they're negative at week four, we'll go for 24 weeks in our acute co-infected patients. Um, you know, I think a lot of, Marion can correct me if I'm wrong, I think a lot of hepatologists treat acute HCV with ribavirin still in mono-infected. Yes, I don't think many do. people use PEG alone, but it's, it's certainly a reasonable option. It's recommended, or, you know, it's a list of among the alternatives. Are there other questions? Um, we have a couple more questions, and then I will make sure we answer them during the day. Yeah. So we'll put them in with whatever group. Right. 
because David wasn't trying to do the meaning of life this morning. He was just trying to get you up to speed. Do a couple more. Well, we can do this one since we won't come back to it again. How do we, dif how do we determine ITPA deficiency in clinical practice? You don't. Well, we don't. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. That okay. was easy. That was an easy one. All right. We'll save these and make sure we do them for the next... Uh, just keep handing them up and we'll make sure that you get answered. Good morning. Um, my name's Marion Peters. I'm co-chair with uh, David Wiles. He's Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and I'm Professor of Medicine and Chief of Hepatology Research at UCSF. We welcome you today. Where's my, oh, here it is. Um, we have a, a great day planned. We have a lot of time for interactive discussion. We also have some direct lectures, so we hope that since this isn't a large group, that we can really move along and answer your pressing inquiries. We'll also be available at lunch, and that's another opportunity to talk to people. Um, the case-based discussions, there's one in the morning and one in the afternoon. I think this is a, a really interactive uh, system, and we look forward to getting a lot of data out from that. You know the mission of um, the International Antiviral Society to improve the treatment, care, and quality of life for people with HIV, hepatitis C, and other viral infections. We have accreditation. Um, you know the usual, turn oops, was so usual I jumped it. Turn off all the noisy things, I better do mine. Don't stay at the door, go outside if you want to talk. There are credits available and they're going to be done online this year, so you'll get that information. And I should remind you, the case-based discussions are not in your book. They will be handed out at the time of the case-based discussion. We do thank um, our, su our supporters from industry, uh, Vertex, Abbott, Gilead, Merck, and Janssen. So new, this is the uh, evaluations are going to be electronically uh, sent to you. Once you complete the evaluation form, then you get your CME certificate. So this will make it easier and more efficient. You could just print it out when you're ready. So now we're going to practice our little, whatever you call them, what do you call them? Audience response questions. All right, all you have to do is be able to read, who are you? And um, you can choose what best describes you. So the majority are physicians, nurse professionals, and pharmacists, with some nurse practitioners and PAs. We welcome you all. What is your primary specialty? I think this is helpful in how we adjust discussions, because sometimes if you're primarily HIV, you don't need to go over a lot of things, where if you're a primary a hepatologist, you'll know a lot of things. So what do you most call yourself? Infectious disease and internal medicine. Okay, with uh, limited gastroenterology and hepatology. Excellent. And how many HCV-infected patients do you personally manage or have managed in the last year since triple therapy came out? Okay, so if the, while most of you haven't managed any, a quarter have managed a significant number of patients and have a lot of experience and will welcome your feedback. And then there seems to be a spectrum. How many HCV patients are in your clinic overall? That is, you may not have treated them, but they're banging on the doors.
There are a lot of patients anxious to have something done. Excellent. And then we wanted you, to, we wanted to sort of get a sense for where you see yourself in the hep C treatment arena, either an expert or limited experience or somewhere in between. So we apologize if we dumb it down too much, and we apologize if we have too much acronyms and speed. We've tried to make a balance, and for that reason, you have all the slides in your uh, handouts so you can look at them later and go over if you need to. Have you accessed your profile on the new IAS USA website? <laughs> this will be a good one. I know what I'm choosing. All right, well, I'm surprised how many people have. Um, did you attend the pre-course, yes or no? So two-thirds of you did. Excellent. So today we have hepatologists, infectious disease speakers. So we really have a blend of the people who are really treating these patients as fewer gastroenterologists are treating uh, the new hepatitis C DAAs. So we welcome.